reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in your pew Bibles or your seat Bibles, page 960. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters, utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone in interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, so who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, to, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or believers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, but he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, let, and let someone interpret it. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in, in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be, all be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So what do you look for in a church service? What is it that a church ought to be doing when it gathers on Sunday mornings? My guess is that most people in the world around us don't give a ton of thought to this particular issue. But I would think that this particular group of people gathered here this morning, uh, by definition, church-going folk, uh, would have some thoughts. But maybe you've never sort of thought about it too carefully. For some of us, this is the only church you've ever really known. And so maybe you take it for granted that the way we do things is the way they ought to be done. Uh, maybe this is the only church you've ever known and you're coming to the conclusion that things ought to be done really differently. Uh, maybe you've just moved to the area, just joined the church. Maybe you're even a visitor this morning and, and you're looking for a church. And so I wonder, if that's the case, uh, how do you evaluate one church service versus another? What do you think a church gathering ought to look like? What criteria can we use to determine what's good and what's bad when a church gathers together? Is there simply just a matter of preference? It doesn't really matter. I like this kind of music more than I like this kind of music. Uh, is it uh, the, the service leader? I connect with that guy more than I connect with this one. Maybe it's the length of the service. Am I likely to get home in time for football? Are my children going to survive the length of the sermon? Well, I wonder, particularly if you're a member of this particular church, I wonder if you ever stop and think about what would make our church gatherings on Sunday morning good or bad. Do you ever think about any objective criteria that we might be able to use to determine that? Is the goal of the church gathering to attract people? who aren't Christians? Uh, should we be doing whatever it takes to make outsiders feel welcome? Is there some other code of conduct that we ought to be uh, holding on to? 
Well, I think we find some answers to those questions as we turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here we see Paul giving the congregation in Corinth some specific instructions and some important principles for, for what to do and how to regulate their conduct when they gather together. It seems from Paul's concerns that there was a lot of conflict and chaos in the life of the church. Uh, we know that uh, 1 Corinthians represents the, at least the second letter that Paul has written to this church. Uh, they've been having a back and forth correspondence where the Corinthians have been pushing back on some of Paul's teaching and pressing some of their own issues. We know that Paul received reports from some of his people about problems in the church. And so it seems that uh, there were some difficulties, some issues uh, that were arising when the church gathered together. And so Paul wants to address those here in chapter 14. So let's look at Paul's instructions. There's, I'm afraid, not a very clear outline this morning. We're just going to kind of drink from the fire hose as best as we can. We have a lot of ground to cover uh, and, and not enough time to do it in. So uh, Paul jumps around a bit and so will we. But I, I just want to kind of broadly, if you need some kind of structure, uh, I want to start out with the first section, which runs from really verse 1 to verse 19. I try to understand a couple of issues we've been putting off for a while now. Specifically, uh, what does Paul mean when he talks about the gifts of tongues and prophecy? And then we'll finish by spending most of our time at the end of uh, the chapter in verses 20 to 40, where Paul gives some instructions about how these gifts operate in the church. And so we'll be jumping around a little bit back and forth. I think it'll help you if you have a Bible open. I'll try to reference specific verses as often as I can. But as we dive in, remember back in chapter 12, at the very end of chapter 12, Paul told the church this. He said, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Last week in chapter 13, we saw Paul lay out that more excellent way, the way of love. And here in chapter 14, in the very first verse of the passage, we see Paul jumps back to where he left off in chapter 12, uh, except this time he places love at the beginning of, of his sort of list of priorities. He says there in verse 1, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So we know Paul wants them to pursue love. He's told us that at great length in chapter 13. But, but here he clarifies that when they earnestly desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as he told them to do back in chapter 12, they should want to prophesy particularly. And what becomes clear as you go through chapter 14 is that Paul is particularly concerned to compare the gift of tongues, the sort of spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, with the spiritual gift of prophecy. And so here he tells the, the Corinthians that they should desire prophecy most of all, at least particularly in comparison to the gift of tongues. And so I think we can read into that that this was a particular issue of contention in the Corinthian church. We know that they were arguing and fighting about their spiritual gifts, that the, the people who had kind of dramatic spiritual gifts were, were sort of looking down on people who had more ordinary spiritual gifts. And it seems even here from the amount of time Paul spends comparing prophecy and tongues, it seems like there might have even been conflict between sort of this group over here that has sort of amazing spiritual gifts, that some people said tongues is better, some people were saying prophecy is better. And we might expect that Paul would just sort of play it safe, that he would avoid making a value judgment. Like when two little kids bring you their pictures and say, which one's better? And you're like, they're both amazing, right? 
But Paul doesn't do that. He's like, no, prophecy's better. He, he calls it as he sees it. And so what I want to do is just stop and look at these two gifts, what Paul means when he says prophecy in tongues, or at least as best we can figure out, and then try to understand why it is that he says that prophecy is better. So there's a lot of debate about what's meant by the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. I'm going to wade in with some thoughts uh, and hopefully give us some ways we can think about it well. Uh, but I think the most important thing to do is to look at what the passage actually tells us about these gifts. So let's start with the gift of tongues here in chapter 14. We've seen it mentioned throughout Corinthians, uh, but I want to focus in on what it says here in chapter 14. Uh, there in verse 2, uh, we see that speaking in tongues, it's a spiritual gift, so it's something that you've been given the ability to do by the Spirit of God. And it says that speaking in tongues means speaking in sounds or languages that people can't normally understand. So there in verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. Right? So, so whatever tongue speaking is, under normal circumstances, it's not something that's understood. So it seems that that's different than what we see in Acts chapter 2, where at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on God's people and they begin to speak in tongues. But there, the tongues that they're speaking in are, are actual human languages that the hearers identify and say, hey, here I am in Jerusalem, even though I'm from far away, and somebody's speaking my language. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems that Paul understands that probably no one is going to understand uh, what it is that the tongue speakers are saying. It seems that in Corinth, this was something other than human language. So that's not to say that it's nonsense, but rather Paul says there in verse 2 that, that when someone speaks in tongues, they're speaking to God. Right? He says it again there in verse 28. Uh, it's likely that Paul understood tongues as a, as a way of supernaturally expressing praise to God. There in verse 14, Paul says that you can pray in a tongue. In verse 15, uh, he says that you can praise God in tongues. Uh, there in verse 2, he says that tongues are a way of uttering mysteries in the power of the Holy Spirit. It seems that the mystery here is wrapped up in the fact that the person speaking in tongues doesn't actually know what he's saying. Right Again, that's what Paul's implying there in verses 14 and 15. The, the tongue speaker has an active spirit, he says there, but an unfruitful mind. Right? He doesn't understand what he's saying. So it seems like a, a workable description of what Paul's saying tongues are here is, is prayer or praise to God spoken in words and sounds that the speaker doesn't understand. Right? That seems to be a sort of a rough description of what Paul means by the gift of tongues. So it's the sort of spirit-given ability to, to praise God or to pray in, in spoken words or sounds that the speaker doesn't themselves actually understand. Okay, so what purpose does that serve? Why would God give that as a gift to his church? Well, down in verse 22, Paul indicates it can function as a sign of judgment for unbelievers. We'll, we'll think about that, Lord willing, in a few minutes. But there at the end of verse 5, it, it seems that that the content of the tongues can be edifying for the church if it's interpreted. There at the end of verse 5, uh, Paul talks about the idea that someone in the, in the church might have the spiritual gift of interpretation so that they can actually understand what the tongue speaker is speak, saying and that that content might be useful uh, to build up the church. This is inspired speech that has defined content or definite content. Right? It's not gibberish. Uh, it's just that most people aren't going to be able to understand it. 
So then the gift of prophecy. If that's what tongues is, let's look at the gift of prophecy. So unlike tongues, prophecy is speech that can be understood by others. And so Paul says it's useful to them. Uh, we read there in verse 3, on the other hand, so in comparison to tongues, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. In that sense, prophecy in verse 22 is called a sign for believers. Right? When people hear a word of prophecy and respond with faith, it can help them. It can encourage them. Now, that, that term prophecy does create some confusion. When we think of a prophet, we usually think of it in sort of Old Testament terms. Someone like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Right? The Old Testament prophets spoke the words of the Lord in a way that was authoritative and binding. Right? If a prophet spoke on behalf of the Lord, you didn't get to not listen to them. Right? You had to do and believe what they said. But it, it seems pretty clear that the way Paul talks about prophecy here in the New Testament isn't the same. The people in the New Testament who speak authoritatively on behalf of God, those are the apostles of whom Paul was one. And so it's important to notice that Paul understood that it's the message of the apostles that was binding in the way that the message of the Old Testament prophets was. So we see the priority of apostles back in chapter 12 uh, in verse 28. Paul says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, the gifts of healing, helping, administration, and significantly, he says, last, various kinds of tongues. So Paul says there, look, apostles are first, prophets are second. I think this is reflected in what Paul says at the end of our chapter, in chapter 14, where he writes this, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's verses 37 and 38. You see, Paul understands that there are prophets in the church. But he says, if you think you're a prophet, this is how we'll know. Acknowledge that what I'm saying is binding and truthful, that I'm the one as the apostle who speaks on behalf of the Lord. Uh, prophets in the church are meant to be recognized as legitimate based on whether or not they were in conformity to the teaching of the apostles. So there in verse 29, we're told that when prophets speak, their words are meant to be evaluated. Uh, the Greek word Paul uses there is literally sifted by the members of the church to see whether they're valuable, to see whether they're true, to see whether they're in keeping with the apostolic message. So again, we'll get into that a little bit more uh, in a bit. But we should ask, what, what is this gift of prophecy then? And, and how is it functioning in the life of the church at Corinth? Well, Christians are divided on that answer. Uh, most Reformed teachers hold that now that the Bible is completed, the gift of prophecy, uh, as we would experience it, is simply what I'm doing right now, uh, teaching and preaching the Word of God. Uh, the sort of Reformed tradition has concluded that we don't need any of this sort of direct inspiration from God because we have it all right here in this book. So whatever prophecy was in Corinth, whatever kind of direct revelation people were getting in Corinth, we don't need it now uh, in our church. And I'm a big fan of the centrality of the Bible in our life together. Right? It's even going to be a point in this sermon in just a little bit. But I, I don't think that understanding of prophecy actually really comes from this text of the Bible as much as it comes from our experience and our sort of doctrinal commitments. 
I don't see anything in this passage that leads me to conclude that what Paul's talking about is merely preaching. In fact, he understands that teaching is a sort of separate activity from prophecy. I think actually Wayne Grudem's definition makes pretty good sense of the biblical data, so let me give that to you. Uh, He says that the, the New Testament gift of prophecy is this, telling something that God has brought to mind spontaneously. So I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% convinced that that's exactly right, but I do think it captures the data uh, that we see, particularly in 1 Corinthians, well. Prophecy is telling something that God has brought spontaneously to mind. I think this seems to fit well with what Paul says in verse 30, where he says that prophecy involves revelation from God that actually comes suddenly. It's something that can happen in the middle of a church service. And it seems that that prophecy is meant to have some immediate relevance to the people who are sitting. So it's, it, it's not so much I have a word from the Lord that something's going to happen in 500 years. But rather the way we see prophecy functioning in the New Testament church seems to be more God bringing to mind something that's immediately relevant to the people who are hearing it. Uh, Paul says here at the end of our passage that, that prophecy even has the power to disclose the secrets of men's hearts. Right, The, the people who are actually present in the meeting and cause them to fall on their face. And so I think if you think about prophecy in that way, uh, you might recognize that maybe something like prophecy is actually at work in our congregation. So Don Carson, the New Testament scholar, says this. He says, prophecy may occur more often than is recognized in non-charismatic circles, and less often than is recognized in most charismatic circles. But I think, if I, as I think back over my experience of being a, a part of this church, there have been times when someone in a prayer meeting just feels the Lord's direction in a sort of surprising way to pray a certain way, and it, it later bears out that that was actually a remarkably important thing for us to pray about. There have been times when someone will stand up in a members meeting and say something uncharacteristic but so exactly right that you wonder, that seemed like an unusual sort of sort of involvement of God. I remember, many of you remember Miss Doris Jenkins, uh, the elderly saint who's home with the Lord. I remember one, if you knew Miss Doris, she never said anything unless she was praying. And I remember one members meeting at the old Guilford building where we were having a a difficult uh, discussion about something that was actually really central to the understanding of the gospel. And and people were going back and forth and the conversation wasn't going very well. And finally Miss Doris stood up and she said something that was so perfectly right that all of us went, that's it. And, and we voted, and we moved on, and it was, it was perfect. And I thought, that might be what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the New Testament gift of prophecy. Again, I'm not sure, not 100% sure, but, but that does seem to fit with what Paul's talking about here. I know personally, despite all of my preparations during the week, there are some times when in the middle of the sermon, uh, something will come to mind, and I feel compelled to say it. And, and almost without exception, when that happens... People come up to me afterwards and say, that one thing was really helpful. I was convicted by that. That spoke exactly to to some heartache and suffering I've been experiencing in my life. That felt like the word of the Lord speaking directly to me. And I always think, why did that come here and now, not in like the 20 hours in my study? That may be the New Testament gift of prophecy working in some way. If that's the case, if that's somewhere around the truth of what Paul's talking about here, you can see why Paul would tell the Corinthians to earnestly desire this gift. Right? What, a, what a wonderful way to, to build up and edify the church. 
Right? Who, who wouldn't want this ability to instruct and challenge the church by the Lord's illumination? Right? This makes sense again of what Paul says there in verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. When the, word, the Lord gives a word of prophecy, it's a great benefit to the church. Uh, so it's wholly appropriate, I think, for us as a congregation to pray and seek after this gift. Not in order to call attention to ourselves, not to bring ourselves glory, but because we want to edify the church. I think you can see why Paul prefers prophecy and all of its value to the congregation over and against tongues, which seems remarkable, but, but ultimately doesn't edify anyone unless there's interpretation. So in terms of our life together as a church, I mentioned last week, I don't think there's any reason in the Bible to conclude that these gifts are no longer functioning in the church. In fact, we have members of our church who pray in tongues as a sort of private prayer language. Perhaps it's not quite as unusual as we might think it is. But I think we also have to remember what we saw back in chapter 12, that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. And so we can't say that certain gifts must or, or must not be present in the life of a particular congregation. Uh, we shouldn't despair if we don't see tongues sort of playing out in our midst. We shouldn't conclude, therefore, that the Spirit isn't present with us. But as chapter 12 reminds us, uh, the Spirit is sovereign in his distribution of gifts to individuals and to churches. In everything, Paul's main concern here in this section of Corinthians is really the same as it's always been through the whole book, and that is not on the sort of individual believer's experience of the gifts, but rather on the edification of the church. That's why Paul places such a high value on interpretation for tongues. He says there in verses 6 through 11 that speaking in tongues, it can be like the senseless blast of an instrument, or it can be like a foreign language that someone doesn't know. It's really just not a lot of good unless some order is imposed on it through the gift of interpretation. The gifts in the church are to build up the body for the common good, as he says back in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. That's why Paul says that prophecy is better than uninterpreted tongues, because prophecy communicates truth to others. That's why Paul says that tongue speakers should desire the gift of interpretation so that their words might actually be able to edify others. That's why Paul says he'd rather speak five words in a plain language than 10,000 words in an uninterpreted tongue, there in verse 19. So even if you don't speak in tongues and prophesy, which I think is going to be most of us, uh, there are ways, I think, that you can apply this passage to your own life and your own involvement in the church. And this, I think you can use what Paul says here as a reminder to cultivate in your own life a passion for building up the local church, for building up this congregation, if this is the church you're a member of. Paul says it there in verse 12, and I think this is really the point of the first half of the passage. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. He says, strive. Don't just sit back and wait for it to happen, but rather put some effort into it. Pray about it. Plan for it. Execute it. Make it a priority in your life as it was in Paul's. He says, strive to excel, right? Now he's talking Northern Virginia language, right? If only he would say, strive to excel at work. Strive to excel to make sure your kids get into the best college. Strive to excel to make sure your kids are the best at sports, 
Strive to excel to make sure you have the biggest house. No, Paul says strive to excel. We know what he's talking about at building up the church. That's what a, that's what a Christian ambition looks like. Brothers and sisters, don't be satisfied with lukewarm or half-hearted service to God's people. Right? When we give our best to God's people, we are imitating Christ himself. Strive to excel at building up the church. Friends, your time is doubtlessly well spent in a number of different endeavors. So often we invest ourselves in building up social organizations or sports teams, our kids' schools, our bank accounts, our jobs, our homes. And look, all of those things on some level are fine. But they're also all fleeting. They are all passing. None of them will survive into eternity. But Christ's bride will. And so he says, strive to excel at building up Christ's church. Whether you have the gift of tongues, whether you have the gift of prophecy, whether you think that no one should have those things, whatever gifts that God has given you, strive to excel at building up the church. And secondly, I think what Paul says here particularly leads us to think about the way we use our words. Paul here sees the excellency of prophecy because it means that the words of a, of a prophecy are useful to other people, whereas the words of tongues aren't. And so even if you don't speak in tongues or don't, uh, don't have the gift of prophecy or don't believe that those things continue on, you definitely speak words. You definitely say things. And, and Paul says here that, that what we do is we evaluate the things coming out of someone's mouth by how useful they are to building up the faith and the love of other people, particularly in the church. What comes out of your mouth is meant to glorify God and help others. And so I wonder, do the things that come out of your mouth encourage other people to be more godly? Do the things that come out of your mouth encourage other people to, to love and trust God more and more? Or are your words honestly a net loss for the gospel? Would it actually be better for the health of the church if your words were unintelligible? Christ came to build up his church. The Spirit, Paul says, was sent to equip the saints, that's us, for the ministry of the church, for the building up of one another. And so we are, with our words, either working for that purpose or against it. And so as we turn now and look at the, roughly the second half of the passage, really in verses 20 to 40, in this section, I think there's a few different things that Paul tells us about, about how we ought to organize our gatherings together, or at least what things ought to characterize our gatherings together. So prophecy, he says, is better than tongues because prophecy edifies, right? We want our Sunday morning gatherings to be marked by, by things that edify and build up the church. We want all of our words and the way we use all of our spiritual gifts to be ways that we're striving to excel at building up the church. And here in the, the end of the passage, Paul gives us, I think, some specific things that should characterize our gatherings together. And so let me just give you uh, a few things here that I see in this passage. Uh, first, it, it seems that when a church gathers together, there ought to be a concern for the spiritual well-being of outsiders. Uh, Paul, there in verses 20 to 25, he continues his comparison of the spiritual gifts, really speaking in tongues and prophecy. And he begins there in verse 20 by encouraging the church to be mature. He says, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil but in your thinking, be mature. 
Paul says, stop thinking like children. Right? When it comes to evil, it's okay to be naive and innocent. But when it comes to these issues, Paul says, you need to be wise. You need to be mature. The Corinthians were overvaluing the gift of speaking in tongues because it was flashy, because it seemed super spiritual. And it seems that some of them were putting way too much emphasis on this particular gift. And so Paul is, seems to be calling that kind of thinking immature. Right? He's saying, stop being children and start thinking well about these issues. Start having the right priorities. Right? If you remember back in chapter 3, he's already, he's already accused them of great immaturity and said that he, he couldn't even give them serious spiritual food. Brothers and sisters, it is the mark of an immature Christian to concentrate their mental and physical and spiritual and emotional energy on things that are of secondary importance. That's what the Corinthians were doing here. And Paul's saying, look, grow up. You're, you're, you're attracted to the wrong things. You're believing that you're, you're, you're emphasizing the wrong things. Get on board with what's really important, building up the church. There in verse 21, in discussing the gift of tongues, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. That verse comes from a time when God was threatening to punish the people of Israel. He had spoken to them, and they hadn't listened. And so the Lord speaks to the nation yet again through the prophet Isaiah. And he says that God is going to speak again to the nation through a foreign tongue. So there in verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What happened in light of that? is that the Lord sent the Assyrians to destroy the nation. He sent a conquering nation as a means of showing his judgment against Israel's hard-heartedness. If you will, God spoke to Israel in a language they didn't understand. He spoke to them through the Assyrians. He spoke to them through an invading army. Suddenly a foreign language was being spoken in the nation of Israel. And so God's communication through a foreign language served as a sign to Israel of God's judgment. He says, if you won't listen to me as I speak to you, uh, maybe maybe you'll get the message when when I send a foreign nation in, when I speak to you through the Assyrian people. Paul takes that moment in Israel's history and he applies it to the Corinthians speaking in tongues. He says that tongues are meant as a sign for unbelievers. And here, the word sign means something that shows God's attitude, whether it's positive or negative. Right in the context of Isaiah 28, Paul must mean that that tongues function as as a negative sign, a sign of God's judgment against unbelievers. I think the idea here is that if an outsider or an unbeliever comes in and hears the Corinthians speaking in tongues, sort of unintelligible speech, there in verse 23, Paul says, well, they're going to think you're crazy, and they're going to leave, and they're never going to hear the gospel. They're never going to hear the message of the Lord Jesus. So if an unbeliever comes in and everyone's speaking in tongues, God will be speaking. Those words that they're speaking, that is God's inspired speech. But Paul says if the tongues aren't interpreted, no one's going to understand. And that's a kind of judgment, Paul's conclusion is that the church should not exercise the gift of tongues outside the presence of an interpreter. Prophecy, on the other hand, serves, Paul says, as a sign for believers. 
And that might be a couple of reason, for a couple of reasons. It could be that in prophecy, the Lord speaks to his people. And that's simply an encouraging sign. That, that reminds me that God loves me and cares about me and communicates to me. Or it could be that, that prophecy could serve to, to cause an unbeliever to have his or her eyes opened. Right? Uh, an unbeliever might become convicted as they hear a word of prophecy. They might become aware of their guilt. Paul says that the secrets of their heart might be revealed. And that would cause an unbeliever to repent of his sins. Right? And then everyone present would know that God's spirit was active in the church. And all of that would be a sign of God's power and presence in the congregation. Uh, Paul's saying this is a sign to believers. Right? Nothing is more encouraging to the church than when God's spirit is changing people's lives. That's what we're celebrating with Caleb's baptism later in our service, right? Nothing makes you more aware that God is alive and active than when people's lives are being transformed by his grace. And, and Paul says, by God's spirit, prophecy can do just that. So in a Christian gathering, we should be concerned about the impact that the things that we're doing have on outsiders or, or unbelievers who are present with us. It doesn't mean that we change the message of the cross to make it less offensive to people who don't believe it. Right? We don't change the sort of foundational understanding of, of why we're here and what the gospel is to make it attractive and palatable to unbelievers. But it does mean that we, we have a sensitivity and an awareness to try and, and make our gatherings as, as helpful to people who don't know the Lord as possible. So... If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, please know that we're really glad that you're here. We actually intentionally want you to be here in this service, and we've designed this service in some ways to try and be helpful to you if you, in fact, want to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. We hope, in fact, that this service has been helpful to you this point, but more than anything, more than your comfort, more than your enjoyment of this time, uh, we want you to hear from us the message of Jesus Christ. That's what we want you to walk away with this morning. And that message is this, simply, that God created every one of us to live in a right and good relationship with him. But every one of us has rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. We've loved the things that we've loved rather than loving him. We've taken his gifts and we've, we've made them the center of our lives rather than using those gifts to cause us to love him. Right? The Bible calls all of that sin. And it tells us that the result of our sin is that we are God's enemies. And we, res we deserve his judgment. And what's worse is that we're actually hardened in our sin. As Paul says here in chapter 14, we actually need to be convicted we need to have our hearts exposed, right? We might look pretty good on the outside, but, but if, you, if you expose what's on the inside, right, if we all had access to one another's secrets, it would be a very different story. And the truth is that God knows your secrets. He knows my secrets. He knows everything you've thought and said and done. But the good news is that he loves you anyway. And he doesn't actually want you to persist in being his enemy. And so he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live the life of obedience to him that you and I should have lived. And Jesus died on the cross. And on that cross, he took all of our punishment. He took all of the, the justice, all of the wrath of God that you and I deserved. 
And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death so that you can actually have a relationship with God now. If you would turn from your sin, if you would trust in Jesus, you'd be forgiven for your sins. You'd be welcomed into God's family. You'd be given the gift of eternal life with him. Friend, the fact that God is speaking to you now, however inartfully, but in a language that you can understand, is a gift of love. Don't despise it. It's a kindness of God that he hasn't sort of left you to wander away, but has sent his son and has given you the the message of the gospel. So friend, turn from your sins this morning. Fall on your face, if you will, and put your faith in Jesus. If you do that, you will be saved. If you have questions about what that means, we'd love to talk to you more about it. I'd encourage you to talk to the person who invited you this morning, or you can come talk to me or anyone that you've seen up here this morning. We would love to tell you more about the message of Jesus. One of the reasons we gather on on Sunday mornings is to proclaim that message so that people like you might hear it and find salvation in Christ. A good church gathering should be accessible to unbelievers. It should present the gospel to them. Uh, the second thing I think we see in this passage is that, is that uh, a healthy church gathering exhibits respect for God's word. And we see that towards the end of our passage in verses 36 to 38. In this context, God's word means Paul's letters. Right? As I've mentioned earlier, Paul asks uh, the Corinthians to, to determine whether or not uh, his words are authoritative. There in verse 36, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Right, Paul asks the Corinthians, are, are you the only ones who know God's truth? Did God send his message out through you? Right, the answer, of course, that they would have to acknowledge is no, Paul. God sent his message out through you to us. Paul says that the truly spiritual person, right, and remember, that's the, that's the crux of the issue for the Corinthians. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? They thought it was to have sort of fancy, flashy spiritual gifts. Paul says the truly spiritual person is the one who recognizes what I say, right? The, that seems to be the point of this entire letter in many ways, right? Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize the truth of what he's writing to them. For us, we have more than just the book of 1 Corinthians. We have the entire Bible. Uh, Just as the Corinthians had to recognize the the authority of Paul's letter, we're called on to recognize in our gatherings the authority of the entire Bible. Uh, Respect for God's word is respect for God himself. He has spoken to us. We have it in our own language. Uh, The question is, what, what do we do with it when we get together on Sunday mornings? And so in our gatherings, we... We want to make sure that we're going to read God's word together, that we don't just come together and say, well, how's everybody doing today? What's going on? What are you thinking? It doesn't actually matter. What we want to do is read God's word. We want to hear from him. And then we respond, as Mike pointed out at the very beginning of our service, by responding with God's word. We sing God's word back to him, right? We pray God's word to him. We, we listen to God's word being preached, whether it's me or Seth or Mike or, or someone else. In the Lord's Supper and in baptism, we, we see God's word being held out to us. 
Everything we do is centered around God's revelation of himself. And why is that? Because that's how God himself would have it. Right? All throughout scripture, we see that God uses his word to bring life. Right? At creation, God creates the world through the power of his word. He speaks and things come into existence. Right, if you think of Ezekiel chapter 37, you see the prophet in the, the famous valley of the dry bones. And, and Ezekiel despairs about what could possibly bring life to these dry bones. And, and so the, the Lord says, prophesy to the bones. Let the bones hear the word of the Lord. And what you see is that these dry, dead, dusty bones, as the word of God goes out, they come to life. Right, it's, a, it's a picture of our spiritual condition. Apart from God, we're dry bones, but God's word comes and gives us life. In John chapter 11, Lazarus lays dead in the tomb, and Jesus speaks and calls him back to life. God creates by his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. When I was a child, my pastor would read these verses, or he had them memorized. He would say these verses before every sermon. The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is a double-edged sword. We would say today it's dynamite. Right? It's a loaded gun. It's a stick of dynamite. It can blow up in the best way possible our lives and our church, destroying sin, reforming our life together. And so, friends, that's why we commit so much of our time to hearing God's word, to hearing the Bible read, to hearing sermons. Right? Not because we're old-fashioned, not because that's the way the reformers used to do it, but because we need, what we need is not entertainment. Right? We have Netflix for the other six days a week, right? What you need is not sort of folksy advice and homey stories, right? You can get that somewhere else, probably from someone more qualified than me. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, what we desperately need is to hear God's word, to have that double-edged sword lay us open, expose us, and ultimately shape and heal us. So we submit ourselves to God's word. In Paul's picture here in 1 Corinthians 14, we acknowledge its authority over us. And the third and final thing for us to see about our gatherings is that they should be, they should be characterized by the character of God. I think you see that in verses 27 to 35. Paul says some pretty surprising things about how we should use our gifts in the church. There in verse 27, he gives some guidelines for speaking in tongues. Uh, I won't read them, but just to summarize, he says, look, there should probably only be two or three total. Right? This could be in order to prevent things from going on too long. It might just be a way of keeping tongues from sort of taking over a meeting. But Paul says also there that they should take turns and that there has to be an interpreter. Uh, otherwise, as we've seen a few other times, it'd be largely useless to the church. Likewise, starting in verse 29, he he gives instructions to the prophets. He says, again, only two or three at a time. He, he says that what they say should be weighed and sifted carefully, not just kind of blindly embraced. There in verse 31, he says the prophets should take turns. He even surprisingly seems to indicate that you might have a prophecy from the Lord, but not actually say it. 
because someone else has something better or there's simply not enough time. Paul also says something surprising about the role of women in all of this. There at the end of verse 33 to 35, we read this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And again, just as we saw back in 1 Corinthians 11, that the word that Paul uses for woman, the Greek word for woman, can also mean wife. So it could be that Paul's specifically talking about married women or women in general. It's not clear. It does seem uh, there towards the end of that section I just read that Paul assumes that whoever he's talking about has a husband. So uh, it could be that, in fact, he is specifically giving instructions to wives. But it's confusing on a couple of levels. I mean, first, if we're just being honest, it shocks our modern sensibilities. Right? We saw this back in chapter 11. Right? Paul has a concern that the Corinthians maintain gender distinctions in their gatherings. Right Back in chapter 11, he wanted women to dress like women and men to dress like men, for women to conduct themselves in the gatherings in ways that sort of self-consciously demonstrated that they were under the authority of their husbands. There he described a relationship of equality back in chapter 11 between men and women, where, where God had ordained that men would exercise authority in certain roles, in the marriage and the church, in a way that would reflect creation order. Uh, but not only does it sort of offend our modern sensibilities, it seems hard to understand what Paul says here in light of what he says in chapter 11. Right here, Paul insists that women be silent in the church. But in chapter 11, he clearly understands that women will be involved in prophesying and praying in the church. And the New Testament understands that certainly women will be singing in church. And there's no indication whatsoever that the gift of speaking in tongues is in any way limited to men. So presumably women weren't silent in that endeavor as well. And then if we're being honest, what Paul says here in chapter 14 seems very much at odds with our practice as a church, right? We understand that women can lead singing, read scripture, give announcements, pray, right? Really, we we only understand the, the sort of biblical office of teacher to be reserved for men. Pretty much everything else, it seems, the scripture understands that women were doing in the life of the church. In fact, the only time that women have to be silent in our service is right now, when everyone's being silent except one guy. So the question is, are we out of step with Paul's instructions? Right? We, we do want to bring our life together as a church into conformity with God's word. And so is it, in fact, that we're, we're not doing that by allowing women to do all of those things? Or the question that interpreters wrestle with more than any other is, has chapter 14 Paul met chapter 11 Paul? Like, do they know each other? And I'm not going to pretend that this isn't a complex question. I'm not going to pretend there's not a lot of debate and ink spilled over how to understand it. But I do think that context is important and actually might help us here. Because it seems that what Paul intends to forbid is not all speaking by women in all circumstances. Though there is a way of reading the passage that makes it seem that's what he's saying. But it does, again, Paul understands that women can pray and prophesy and sing. But it seems in context best to understand that what Paul's saying here is that he does not want women to participate, particularly in the specific process of sifting and evaluating prophecy. Again, remember, Paul doesn't have our sort of modern hang-ups about gender and authority 
and the way that those intersect. And his larger concern on this issue is that, that women or wives joyfully reflect the character of the Lord Jesus in their willingness to submit to authority in the life of the church. And again, go back and listen to the sermon on 1 Corinthians 11 if you want to think more about that. But it seems that for Paul, the process of sort of weighing in in some authoritative way on the validity of prophecy would upend that God-ordained order. And so he wants questions about the content of prophecy. If someone wants to learn something, uh, he says should be private conversations with a husband. So I'm happy to talk more about that after the service if you have questions. Just so you know, if you ask me questions, I'm going to ask you questions, so be ready to go. But I do think we can be certain that, that Paul understands here that women are important in, in the way that they function in the life of the church, that women have a vital role, that, that in fact, as we saw back in chapter 11, we're all called to submit to authority in different ways. So, so none of this is meant to be demeaning. Paul clearly doesn't understand that, that he's uh, relegating women to second-class status in the church. Rather, he's calling on all Christians uh, to submit themselves to the, the greater order of the church and to the character of God. You see, we've kind of been all over the map this morning, tongues, prophecy, gender, and it might feel a bit random, but I think if you remember the context, uh, you'll kind of see where Paul's going. Uh, the Corinthian church was plagued by quarrelsome pride and self-interest. And so they saw even their own spiritual gifts as an occasion for self-expression and self-promotion. They seem to argue about who's most worthy of respect, who's the most important. And into that context, Paul says something that sounds odd to us, but he actually calls us to restrain ourselves. He points out situations where we might hold our peace and actually choose to remain silent. He calls on us to prefer the edification of the church as a whole to the expression of ourselves. Look there in verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Right? Whatever gifts you have, whatever role you're called on to play, the, the most important thing in the life of the church is not actually you so much as it is the, the life of the church together, so much as it is the way that you're helping and building up other people. Time and time again in 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul calling the church to reimagine their life in light of the gospel, right? In chapter 6, he's like, look, you could sue each other, or maybe Jesus died on the cross and you shouldn't, right? In, in chapter 5, he says, you could embrace sin, or, or maybe Jesus died on the cross and you shouldn't, right? Time and time again, he says, look, these things that you're doing don't make any sense in light of the gospel. And so here, Paul's calling on the church, stop putting yourself forward. Stop being so worried about your gifts and what you're doing and do what's good for the church. Reimagine your life in light of the gospel. And, and behind all of this, it's important to notice, stands the character of God himself. And again, I think this is the big takeaway in this chapter. I think all the details in this second half find their, their meaning and their point in this concept. That, that the way we conduct ourselves when we gather together is meant to actually reflect the character of God. There in verse 40, we're called upon to conduct ourselves decently and in order. In verse 33, we read, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If God were a God of confusion then presumably speaking in tongues without interpretation would be perfect because everyone would be very confused. 
but actually God's a God of peace. He's a God of order. And so our gatherings are meant to reflect what God is like. Outsiders hopefully can come and observe our gatherings and have some sense of the God that we worship. God isn't characterized by chaos, but by order, reason, and peace. And so our life together as a church family, certainly our Sunday morning gatherings, are to be marked by conduct that displays the character of God. Again, when we listen carefully to God's word, we are communicating a truth about him. We are saying that we have a God who has spoken. And so we maintain silence while he speaks to us in his word. Right? That is a, a profound theological truth that we put on display every Sunday as a church. Right? When we sing well and joyfully, we are communicating something about God, that he is a God who is beautiful, who deserves the love and praise of his people for who he is and for what he's done for us. Right? When we think carefully about our prayers, even our announcements, our leading of the singing, our teaching, we're communicating that God is important and he, he's worthy of our best efforts. When we use the gifts that he's given us, not for our own glory, but to build up his church, we're communicating the wonderful truth that God has made us part of his body and that he loves his bride. When we prefer the interests of others to our own, when we happily sing songs that maybe aren't our favorite because they build up and edify other people, when we even remain silent, when we might want to say something, we're demonstrating the humility of Christ and the peaceful character of God. And when we come together to the Lord's Supper, we're again communicating something important about God's character. Because on display here at the table, we have the, the bread representing the body of Christ broken for us. We have the cup representing his blood shed for us the things that had to happen in order for you and me to be brought in to God's family. When we come to the table, that call is a call to, to live out and act out together the most wonderful display of God's character and love that we could ever imagine. That despite our pride, our disorder, our selfishness, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. And so, brothers and sisters, commit yourself to living together, gathering together each Sunday morning in a way that reflects the character of God and builds up his church. So let's pray together, and then let's come to the table. Heavenly Father, we delight in your goodness, your character. You are a God of peace and order. We thank you for the ways you've given us gifts through your Holy Spirit to enable us to build up your body. Lord Jesus, we delight in your sacrificial love for us, and we pray uh, that by your Spirit you would help us uh, to live out the truths of, these passages, uh, to, of this passage, uh, to live in light of what it teaches us, to delight in edifying one another uh, and in glorifying you. And so we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.